I on? Can you hear me? Whoop, whoop. We'll see, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you can see my tie, but um, it has the Lord's Prayer written on it. And I don't know, Bill, Jim, Jim, if, if we can get our ties to match the theme of our sermons from now on. I think that might be good. good training. Dallas Henry managed to do that for me today, so thank you, Dallas. This is the second of uh, my two sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, the first one took us all the way through, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, I spoke about the need for focusing on what's most important and how prayer is important to that goal. And afterwards, last time I preached, Al Baker came and reminded me of something. He said that trusting God for our daily bread something driven home to the Israelites when for 40 years in the wilderness they literally trusted God for their daily bread. They had to trust him every day or they would starve. And every day there was enough. And any extra was spoiled by the morning. No, you don't get seconds. You'll be fine until tomorrow. One of the favorite things we say at, at our house when someone's still hungry is like, breakfast will be in the morning, you'll be fine. And then on the sixth day, things were a little different. God said, get enough for today and for tomorrow. Don't eat it all in one place. And people who didn't found out that, whoop, seventh day's different. There's no man on the seventh day. Can I borrow some manna? They really, really, about as, as viscerally as can be done, learned the concept of daily bread and of following God's directions for it. I wanted to thank Al for that reminder. What an amazing habit of trust they had the opportunity to build. And yet, like us, they struggled with that. We have all been rescued by God many times, haven't we? And in amazing ways. How many times, for how many years, in how many areas has our Father shown his unimpeachable faithfulness to provide for our needs no matter our circumstances? Anybody here ever changed jobs? Most of us at some point, right? It was... Golly... Fifteen years ago, I think, I read the book that Dave Ramsey recommended called 48 Days to the Work You Love. And in it, which is now very obsolete data, they said that most people change positions or companies or job titles or assignments or something major about their job changes about every 3.2 years. Forty years on the Assembly line with a pension ain't happening anymore. That's a lot of daily bread to trust for. Do we trust him? We should, right? Plenty of reasons. We have evidence that he's trustworthy in many things. Therefore, let us trust him in more things. In for a penny, in for a pound, yes? 
If God provides food and clothing in our complicated economy, no matter our job or unpredictable future, surely he can provide those things that are even more important to us and to him, right? Of course, right. So, now on to the rest of this very remarkable prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say. In the first part, we remember who it is that we're praying to. We're not just shooting the breeze. We're not just muttering into the air. This is God we're talking to. Yeah, that guy. The one who made us. The one who knows every hair on our heads. The one who's in control of every molecule in the universe at the same time. That guy. That's who we're talking to. The one who loved us so much he came to die in our place, to suffer his own wrath on our behalf. That's who we're praying to. We need to remember. Because it puts us, by remembering, into the right relationship with him. We take ourselves off the throne of our hearts, where we don't belong, and where God does. We remember his character that makes our lives all that they are and his promise to bring all things to the glorious end he has in store. And then we ask for what we need, not because he doesn't know, but because we need to remember that we need to ask. We share what's on our minds because we need it. And we remember his faithfulness and careful attention as our good shepherd. brings us to the next part of the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We find this phrase about forgiveness and it's stated very carefully. It doesn't say forgive us because we earned it and we'll try to be nice to the jerks. It doesn't say forgive us before we forgive others. It doesn't say forgive us because there's less to forgive in my life than in others. No. We are put on the same level as everyone else that makes us righteously indignant, annoyed, or offended. Welcome to the club of the annoying, the offensive, Yeah, that's us, just as much it is as it is anyone else, as far as God's concerned. Mm. God's forgiveness to us is attached to our forgiveness to others. If we want God to forgive us quickly, completely, every time, that is the bar of our forgiveness for other people. Woo. No grudges. Unless you want God to hold one against you. No exceptions, no exemptions, because no one can say they don't need God's forgiveness. There is nothing we get to hold over any other human being, because God has much more to hold over us, doesn't he? God knows all about our thoughts, our motives, 
Others only see our actions and sometimes give us the benefit of the doubt. But God knows. He sees all of it. Nothing's hidden from him. And there are no technicalities with God. Nobody gets to say, yes, but the circumstances and feelings were especially hard for me. We can't bargain with God because of the cross upon which our innocent, righteous Savior died to rescue us. Nothing about the crucifixion was fair or right or just in any way. Jesus did not deserve what he suffered there. We did. We are the servant to whom God the Master forgave the unpayable debt. And now our Master watches to see if we will pass on the grace extended to us. To see if we will forgive the hundred denarii debt that our fellow slave owes to us, or if we will start to choke them, demanding repayment. Do we really want justice between us and God? Or do we want his mercy through Jesus instead? And when we have answered that, we must then apply the same standard to our relationships with other people. If God is willing to forgive them, for what they did to you, we must join him to remain in step with him. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about a claim that Jesus made that separates him from every other religious teacher, every other guru, every other whoever that people venerate. And he said, we tend to skip over it because we've heard it so much, but it's this claim to forgive sins, anyone's sin. We get it if somebody steps on my toes and I forgive them, somebody takes my money but I forgive them. But Jesus, untrodden upon and unstolen from, chooses to forgive that person for what they did to me. C.S. Lewis says, asinine fatuity is the kindest description we could give it. Unless he is the God, the definition of holiness and righteousness, who is offended by every sin that is committed. Nobody else makes that claim. Nobody else wants it. Jesus is not just a good teacher, just a prophet for many reasons, but that one that one I keep thinking about when I when I read this. This is hard, this forgiveness thing. If it's not hard for you, then by all means teach the rest of us. But I think everyone here has struggled at some point to forgive somebody, haven't you? It's especially hard when that person doesn't know that you're forgiving them, right? Mm. I see nods, I hear laughs. God knows. Think of all the people who don't know he's forgiven them. He knows. 
we feel justified in our pain. We want affirmation for our unjust suffering. We like our offenses. Because it means we're right, doesn't it? Facebook alone bears witness to the great efforts we make to express offense. T-shirts, bumper stickers, protest posters and hats all speak volumes to this subject. And sometimes forgiveness, not being offended, getting over offense, is harder for Christians than for non-believers. Because we do believe in ultimate justice from a holy and righteous God. Sin will be punished. Our enemy will be defeated. All secrets will be known. Truth will triumph. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood. People, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.26, have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. This is the battlefield of our relationships. Remembering that these offensive, annoying, sinful people are held captive. We're dealing with humans who don't have the right grasp over their wills or the right understanding of right and wrong. And indeed cannot unless Christ lives in them as he lives in us. If they never trespassed against us, never sinned, we would have no role in the Father's rescue plan because no one would need rescuing. The fact that people have to be rescued from the enemy should guide our expectations of their treatment of us. They cannot, and we cannot, hope to do better than be offensive to God and others without the help of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Neither love for God nor love for one's neighbor can be achieved by our efforts alone. So it cannot be achieved by our neighbor's efforts either. They need him just as we need him. May God give us compassion. Because he will see to our healing of what's been hurt, our provision for what's been stolen, and our vengeance for what's been done unjustly. Just because he found us and we accepted him before our neighbor did, that doesn't give us any bragging rights. Just because they sinned against us and we didn't do anything to them, that doesn't give us any rights to demand punishment before we choose to forgive. Because the moment we do, we give up the mercy offered by Christ on the cross. He said, while being unjustly and painfully treated, Father, forgive them. They don't know what the heck they're doing. They don't get it. If they knew what they were doing. Might be a good question for us to ask when we get offended. When we get upset, unfairly treated, hurt, do they know what they're doing? And even if they do, 
God's still willing to forgive. This is our standard. This is what we're called to do, especially when we don't want to do it. Especially when it hurts. Especially when it's not fair. Because it is then that we are forgiving those that trespass against us just as we ask our Father to forgive our trespasses against him, which are just as painful and just as unfair. the voice of conviction. Feelings lie. They make good servants but bad masters. We cannot do the Disney thing and just follow our heart apart from Christ. Our flesh will lead us only to destruction. Holy Spirit will lead us to the death of self-justification but life in Christ after. That life can only be found through death to self. We must break completely with the false sinful self that the enemy has convinced us to join. We must completely reject any notion of paying taxes and having some left over. It's not the way it works. We must die, and there are no half measures to be had here. All of our sinfulness must be destroyed if we are to be joined completely to the Holy One for whom we are made. Death is the only path to any life worth having. That was intense, wasn't it? Kind of like camping. Kind of like camping. There we go. The next phrase. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Does this strike anybody as a little weird? A little odd thing to ask? I mean, here we are asking God, who we know doesn't tempt us, according to James's epistle, to not tempt us. Isn't God the only one who can, who can deliver us from evil? Isn't he always doing that anyway? What's the point of this phrase? In discussing this with some highly educated friends of mine recently, it was mentioned that the Holy Spirit actually led Jesus into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil himself. Try that on for a minute. Let that ruminate. God on purpose led his son to a place where he would be tempted. Why would a good God do that? Doesn't he want us to escape temptation? Hasn't he promised us just that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? That verse describes temptation as being common to man. Something we all go through as a matter of course. Not something optional that God wants us to never endure. This is crucial to accept and understand. God's not called us to a temptation-free life. Darn it all. That seems like a good way to go, doesn't it? Mm. 
except we would have no concept of mercy if that were the case. We would have no compassion, no empathy, nothing to offer the suffering of another and no good reason to need a savior. We would have no freedom to choose evil or good if no evil existed, right? Darn it all. The only way to have anything good is to have the freedom to choose it when you are not forced to do so. And the only way for us to live in that world is to face the attacks of our enemy. That is temptation. When our world, our flesh, and the devil give us their sales pitch about how we can be happy without doing things God's way. Remember, temptation itself is not a sin. Jesus was tempted. All men face it daily. Remember, it's common to man. It must be if our wills are to have the freedom to choose. But God in his mercy, says that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, has provided a way of escape. He didn't forsake us to the wiles of our enemy and the weakness of our flesh. He has intervened to save us. We have a hope no matter how we are tempted. And if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, says 1 John 2.1, and forgiveness through his blood. Joy, relief, save from our enemy again. God is still indisputably good. But back to that phrase about asking God not to lead us into temptation. Do we think he would never lead us into places with temptation? I hope we don't. How could we? We bring our flesh with us everywhere we go. We are always going into places with temptation because we are there. If God's leading us, then he's leading us into places with temptation every day. But that is not the same as God tempting us, wanting us to fall into sin. That's what our enemy wants. So what are we to think? I think the second part of that provides some clarity. Deliver us from evil or from the evil one. That we can surely get behind. We know we have an enemy who wants to divide us from the Father. We should pray regularly for God's help to deliver us out of the traps of our foe. In John chapter 17, Jesus himself prays for his disciples in this way, that they may be rescued from the evil one, but not taken out of the world. He seems to want us to win our battles, not to be taken off the battlefield. That armor isn't for looks. Now, our world looks safe and stable, especially compared to anywhere else in the news or the highlights of history. But we know the supernatural reality does not look the same. Again, we must remember, we're not here to wrestle against flesh and blood, but we are going to wrestle. Our flesh's weakness must be overcome by our will, strengthened by God's spirit. We are in a war, nothing less. We will do battle. We will wrestle. We will struggle against ourselves as a matter of course. 
This is why God providing escape is how he shows his faithfulness. This is why we are admonished to prepare for death to ourselves. For the daily cross, the escape from the prowling enemy, for vigilance and sober thinking. Temptations will come. Opposition to the truth will come. Betrayal will come. Circumstances will be hard. We will be unfairly treated. We will suffer. And most of us have endured all those things at least once already. But without suffering, how will we ever come to know that we need a Savior? That we need forgiveness and that we must give forgiveness. I don't wish suffering on anyone except that there's so much to be gained by it that I would encourage people not to avoid it merely for convenience. I don't wish temptation upon anyone. But if if God leads you, you must learn to face temptation and overcome it, whatever is required. And that battle teaches much that we cannot learn any other way. In Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22... And Matthew chapter 26 is all about the, um, the episode in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus was arrested. Jesus encourages his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. The spirit, he says, is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh needs the discipline of prayer for us to escape temptation. 2 Peter 2.9 reminds us that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So we're in a battle, but we're not alone in the battle. That's good to know. I pray that God leads me through temptation and out of it, though I must surely be tested in it. I pray that he delivers me from the evil one, though I know I will suffer on any path with my Savior, as surely as my Savior has suffered for me. I accept that, though I don't anticipate it with eagerness. But I look beyond it. I know that my Savior has more good for me than I can begin to understand, and more use for my suffering than I can begin to see. I trust him, though my way be painful, lonely, or unjust, though I am tempted and though I will surely give in to it from time to time. Even in the worst of life, he is with me. He forgives and heals me, and he is leading me. I would rather go through that pain and temptation with him than avoid it all without it. Now, I'm going to need reminding about this later, so don't let me forget. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. This last phrase is not found in every manuscript of the Gospels. Whether Jesus intended it to be an official part of the prayer is a matter of some debate. But I find that it brings my mind back from all the scattered wandering through submission and requests and forgiving and repenting and gearing up for battle. And it brings me back to where I started 
my father. For me, it's important to be brought back to him. I get distracted when I think of others, my needs, my motives, my battles. My mind starts to wander around a little bit. That ever happened to you? You ever wake up in the middle of your prayers? It happens. Happened to the disciples in the garden, didn't it? <laughs> Could you not stay awake and pray with me for one hour? This last phrase reminds me that the whole mess of my life and the messy lives of everyone else are all in his hands. That the entire supernatural realm is under his authority. That all of history is being written by him, even our enemy's part. Have you read the ending? In my favorite stories, I don't always like what I read. My favorite characters get into difficult situations, they make mistakes, they fail in some way, but the story doesn't end there. I like the stories more for where they finish than for where they have to travel to get there. In any sporting event, we care more about the final score than the score at any other point, don't we? No matter what penalties have been called, fairly or unfairly, no matter what plays have been executed correctly or not, no matter which players are still in the game, it is the final tally that really matters and what is remembered. I am on God's team, and he doesn't lose. He is good even when he takes me through things that are not good, even when I do what is not good. And he will make me good because he loves me. And sometimes that's all I need to keep in mind. That is what's important to remember. This prayer, like communion, like baptism, like celebrating Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost, brings me back to the truth, to the foundations of my faith. It is harder to be fooled when I keep the truth in mind. This prayer helps me do that. And I need help. I cannot do this life, this story alone, and neither can you. We need each other. We need our Savior. And he knows that. So he taught us to pray. Join me silently as I pray through this prayer for us that our Savior taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, Lord, I pray for all those who struggle with the idea of Father. I pray that they would come to see you as their Father and to see you more and more for who you truly are pray that all of us would not forget that we are in this together. That those persecuted overseas, those in isolated places, those who feel ostracized by their communities, that they would all know they are not alone. That none of us walks this road by himself. Who art in heaven. 
Lord, it's so comforting to know that this earth is not our permanent destination. That you have a place prepared for us. And because of that, you will come back and take us to be there with you. And while we suffer the separation of physical space, while we struggle to connect with you and struggle to keep you in mind always, we thank you that you've sent us the Holy Spirit. That we have equipping for every situation. That we have help and guidance for every moment. We thank you that you care so much for each of our moments. Hallowed be thy name and all that belongs to you. Holy is your name and holy are your people. Holy are all those that are yours. Holy is your word. Help us to be careful in how we handle it. Help us to be careful with the use of your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we know that you are more powerful and more good than anyone else. Whose plans could possibly be better than yours? Help us, Lord, to remember when we're tempted to try to find happiness apart from you, when we're tempted to try to lead ourselves or lead others apart from you, when we're tempted to get on the throne that only belongs to you, help us, Lord, to remember that your plans for us are good, that you are faithful, that your mercies are new every morning. Help us, Lord, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness because we know you will provide for our needs all that we need along the way. Give us today our bread for today. Keep us, Lord, from trying to store too much, from waiting too long. Keep us from trying to wait till things are perfect before we take the next step we know you want us to take. Give us courage for each day, Lord. We need that as much as we need bread. Give us courage to face the day knowing we face it with you. Give us patience to wait for each day's bread. To wait until it's ready. Help us to trust you to provide for our needs. To trust that you will do more with the 90% after we give you 10 than we could ever do with all of it on our own. Help us to follow your directions and be good stewards with what you've given us. We know it doesn't belong to us. The money, the possessions, even our time is not our own. We were bought with a price. Help us to be willing to follow you suddenly 
when we're interrupted, just when we get comfortably settled. Help us to be sensitive to your voice and to go where you lead. And help us to keep in mind the sufferings of our brothers and sisters worldwide, that we might be faithful to lift up in prayer those we know in need, as we have all been lifted up by others. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those poor people who can't find their way without you just like we can't find our way without you. Give us compassionate hearts, Lord, to see past faults to needs even as you did with each of us. Help us to forgive others as we desire your forgiveness and make us mindful of our own sinfulness that we might be more mindful of your great love and mercy. And lead us not into temptation. We pray you would lead us out of it that we might see the way of escape when you provide it. And deliver us from the evil one that when we stumble, when we fall, when we get off track, when we choose to believe those things we know are not true, when we get fooled, when we follow our hearts instead of you, we thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. We pray that you would rescue us and that we would get to help you rescue others. For thine is the kingdom and we are so thankful to be a part of it. Thine is the power. Greater is he in us than he who is in the world. And thine is the glory. For from him and to him, through him is everything. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.